Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Last time, Jerry Weir will explain the concept of covenantal nomism, the idea that Rather than seeking to earn their salvation through perfect obedience, Jews at the time of Christ looked at the law as a covenant God graciously entered into with his people. They entered that covenant by birth and then needed to remain faithful to it through obedience to Torah. This time, Wirrell shows us how this new perspective on Paul affects how we read his epistles. Looking at the first few chapters of Galatians, Weirwill deciphers what Paul was saying about the law for Christians, both Jewish and Gentile. Now, this is a part two interview, so you might want to go back and check out interview number 36, Covenantal Nomism with Jerry Weirwill, before listening to this. Otherwise, here now is interview 37, A New Perspective on Galatians with Jerry Weirwill. Today in the studio, we have Jerry Weirwill, Dr. Jerry Weirwill. He's going to be discussing Paul's correspondence to the Galatians in light of what he talked about last time on the topic of covenantal nomism and how the new perspective on Paul can help us see what's going on there and do some actual nitty-gritty Bible study. So welcome, Jerry. Thanks, Sean. Where should we get started? Well, I think to get started, we can talk a little bit about maybe some background and setting for Paul's letter to the Galatians. And uh, well, regardless of kind of the way that somebody would date the of composition of this letter, it could very well be one of his first writings, the first writings of the apostle that we have right after his first missionary journey. But the thing that we get right at the beginning of Paul's letter here is he has just a completely different style. This letter is really not like any other letter he he's written here that he will write. It's it's unique. His language is extremely harsh. He comes at some of the issues happening in the Galatian churches uh, very aggressively. It shows sort of uh, some of the the urgency and the significance that he puts on the matters at hand, which he's going to address, and, and we'll talk about specifically with the relation with faith and law. So in the beginning of the letter, Paul uses this kind of a cool expression. He says, like, I'm so amazed that you are quickly deserting him uh, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. What, what verse are we in? Uh, we're in verse 6. And he says, but, you know, there really, this is not another gospel, for there are some who are disturbing you who want to distort the gospel. So he's immediately, the, the issue that he's talking about is the gospel, mm-hmm. the gospel which he preached, right. the gospel about Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, he's writing to them because of this news that he's heard that is just completely perplexing to him. He's like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? They're, you guys are turning away from the gospel to this other gospel? And they go on and say that there is no other gospel. And, and he wants to defend the truth of the gospel that he presented to them because this issue with law and faith that's going to come up is actually at the heart of the gospel and what the gospel message means and actually the significance of the Christ event itself. Mm-hmm. Some people maybe are taken aback by the tone of this epistle, especially later on where he talks about circumcision (laughs) in not so nice way. But uh, I I think the tone is fitting because what's at stake here is not a culture issue. It's not, oh, uh, should we wear tassels or not? This is really a central issue. And the verse you pointed out a second ago there, Jerry, is that he is shocked, he's flummoxed that they are not just like doing something a little differently than he taught them. He, the way he understands it, they're deserting him who called you for a different gospel. I mean, look, if you desert the gospel, you're done. This is not, oh, well, as far as the church goes, this is a good way to do things. No, this is not that. This is the, the core of everything. If you lose the gospel, you lose everything because we know that 
based on First Timothy and other places, that the gospel is what we believe in that results in salvation, Romans 1.16 as well. So the gospel is at the core of everything, and we, we cannot lose the gospel. So this is a life-or-death struggle here. Yeah, and one of the words that Paul uses in uh, verse 7, metastrepsi, or metastrepho, Paul uses this word in verse 7, uh, the word sometimes translated as distort, pervert, or change. And, and this is not just a that there's another gospel that's sort of just uh, slightly different, like you're saying. No, this is like the gospel's changed, like it is being transformed into something it's not. And, and that's why Paul is so urgent, and it seems like he's just really forward with trying to straighten out this uh, this mistaken understanding. And he goes into this big defense of his, of his apostolic ministry throughout uh, the rest of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we encounter this Jerusalem council issue over the gospel he preached, where he was, ends up getting endorsed by the apostles to basically show that his, uh, his authority is not derived from the Jerusalem apostles, and his message wasn't something contrived out of their perspective, but is in concert with them and independent from them. Why is he doing this? Why is he trying to build his credibility? Well, uh, as he's going to go on, that there's this issue at Galatia, uh, the churches at Galatia, where some people, some uh, Jewish Christians uh, coming from the Jerusalem church, they were bringing with them the authority and were representatives. And so what he's trying to do, he's trying to counter saying that, you know, his authority is not inferior to theirs. And he comes with the full endorsement of the Jerusalem church itself as well. And so when he talks about his gospel, he's trying to promote to the Galatian churches, the believers there, that he comes as an equal uh, against this distorted view, this different gospel that they're preaching. So he's trying to establish rapport with them. Yeah, you see something similar in Second Corinthians where he's defending his credibility because in that case, super apostles came in, or alleged super apostles, and they criticized him, and they said, what are you listening to Paul for? What does he know? And so, so it is in Galatia, there's this movement of Judaizers and they've undermined his work, and you know he's being called into question. People misread this; they think, "Oh, he's he's bragging or something like that." He's not. Bra- if he doesn't establish his credibility, they're not going to listen to him. If they don't listen to him, they're already believing in a different gospel. And he goes on to say, "A different Jesus." So this is no joke. I mean, this is serious. Yeah, and then if we if we pick it up here in chapter two, verse eleven, about the incident at Antioch. You know, Paul gives this uh, incident here uh, almost as a case point on the effects of this different gospel before he even goes into, like, um, addressing it directly and theologically, as, as we'll get to in chapter 3, uh, where law and faith come front and center. You know, and so when he recounts this uh, incident at Antioch with Peter, where the influence of this different gospel preaching caused Peter— and Barnabas and the rest of the Jews to deviate in their in their conduct, their life conduct, the manner of living, uh, away from the truth of the gospel. That they decided to separate themselves from having table fellowship with the Gentile believers, the Christian Gentiles at Antioch, for uh, in light of the pressure that they were receiving from these people that came from James, from the Jerusalem church. And so this other gospel, this, this other message that, the, that was being preached was actually affecting their Christian conduct in a way that was contrary to and undermining the very fabric and truth of what, God, of what Paul had come and disclosed to them about the nature of the Christ event and about faith in Christ and the unity within his body of both Jew and Gentile. It is kind of a strange way. I'm actually thankful that this controversy occurred so that we could see a a clearer understanding of the Christ event, that it's not just like Messiah came and he died for our sins and he's coming back, but there's so much more to it as far as Jewish-Gentile relations go, speaking as a Gentile myself, that uh, this all really gets worked out on the field, as it were, when issues arise. So uh, let's cover the setting. They were having table fellowship, and your understanding of this is that Peter was eating unclean food? Uh, yeah, so, okay, at Antioch, Peter, the, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians 
uh, would have what we call table fellowship, meaning that they were willing to associate with one another, sit down and eat a meal together. And uh, so first, we do know that that is actually against uh, ritual purity laws of, of Torah observance, like that you don't, uh, Jews don't associate with, with Gentiles in that way. You don't eat with Gentiles, you don't go in Gentile homes, things like that. So we know that they were doing that. And then it says, when the people from James, certain people from James came, that their behavior changed. And they changed in response to the coming of these individuals, which we can call them Judaizers. They're, they're basic Jewish Christians from James who were espousing a, a need to remain Jewish and observe Torah and have the, the purity rites in play so that they weren't viewed as being unclean or that they weren't transgressing against the law of God. And so that's why Peter and then even Barnabas and the rest of the Jews they decided to, because of their fear, it says, of these individuals, fear being the pressure and the persecution maybe that came from uh, the idea of needing to be law observant, that they separated themselves. And Paul calls this hypocrisy. Hmm. And so the hypocrites, Greek there, to be like uh, something that is contrary to the message that Paul had preached. And so he's saying that and that's why you get this great uh, statement here that when Paul confronts Peter, he says, if you, being a Jew, as Peter was, if you live like a Gentile, meaning if you've forsaken uh, law observance or observing the Torah and, and you're willing to associate and eat with Gentiles, as Paul's message uh, endorsed in the gospel, that Jew and Gentile alike are, are equal people in Christ— if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, then Paul says, how is it that you then compel Gentiles to live like Jews? And so this is where we get a little bit of a window into the situation at Antioch. And what it is is that somehow Peter, being influenced by these people from James, was endorsing the idea that Gentiles had to become Jewish. They had to become law observers as well in order to be, as he'll go on to say, part of God's people, part of children of Abraham, part of heirs of the covenant. Which had been the case, mm -hmm. you know, like we talked last time, as far as the idea of covenant and then the living within that covenant. I just wanted to say a word about Antioch before we press on, and, you know, that's the setting for where this controversy occurred. In Acts eleven nineteen, it says, Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that over, arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And it says that the, the, a lot of these Hellenists, these Greeks, responded, and so the church sent up Barnabas, to check out the scene on a fact-finding mission in Antioch. And it says that um, when, when he saw what was going on, he decided that Paul would be a great man for the job. Paul was basically out of the scene. He was off the scene at this point. He had had his conversion, but then they sent him away. They're like, why don't you go back to your hometown and go preach over there? And that's Tarsus. So Barnabas goes to Tarsus in verse 25, and then he brings him to Antioch, and they're there for a year. And this is really the place where you have Jews and Gentiles in actual community together. I mean, we have little spurts of it before this with the Ethiopian eunuch, right? But then he goes back to Africa. Then we have it again with Cornelius, but like there's no church there. So Cornelius can believe that's great. A Gentile believes that's wonderful. But what do you do when you're in a city, a metropolis, a, a bustling town where you have lots of different ethnicities and now Christianity is spreading and you're going to you're going to get together you're going to listen to stories about Jesus and preaching about what his life means and how he's coming back and all this kind of thing and now you're going to have a meal what do you do i mean Jews don't eat uh certain kinds of food and the gentiles do this is all background to this event that happened here that you just described yeah, so there's a, a well-founded church at, at Antioch there that uh, Paul had been instrumental in forming. And as he will talk about later, like in, in chapter 3, in, in verse 1, he gives this like outburst, like, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you before 
whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And the Greek there really just talks about that there's an open declaration of them understanding Christ and his crucifixion, which would have come through his Paul's preaching of the gospel. There was a very well-established group of Christians there of which Paul w- was instrumental in forming. I want to go back because in chapter 2, in verse 15, we get this uh, follow-up where Paul says, we, referring to himself and, and Jewish Christians, like inclusively, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, kind of speaking their language where if you were not a Jew, you were just basically a sinner. That, like, that was like a, just a categorical term. Default. Yeah. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So here we come that Paul is, after confronting Peter, he brings out this whole issue now of justification. He brings into it works of the law and faith. And this is where covenantal nomism is so important to understand because from the traditional reform position, this is kind of like Paul's like attacking doing something versus not doing something in like human effort terms. Whereas the problem here is more or less an ethnic issue with the Judaizers and uh, the covenant with Abraham and the way that they related the law to that covenant. So uh, when Paul in verse 14 is asking Peter, like, well, why are you trying to compel these Gentiles to become Jewish? To actually, uh, the Greek word there is to, to live as a Jew. And that's covenantal nomism. That why are you compelling these Gentiles to be law observant? Because then he goes, he's like, it's not the law that brings justification. A person doesn't, isn't declared right before God because they observe the law, mm-hmm. but by faith in Christ. So he makes this big distinction now between these, these two positions, one being the necessity to observe the law, and the other one being that the basis is not law observance, but Christ and the trust that is placed in him as the Messiah. And... So then he goes on to say, if I'm rebuilding this system that I've, I've done away with, that I've actually tore down, the Greek there, uh, referring to the necessity for law observance as the distinguishing mark of God's people, he says, if I rebuild that, I'm actually just going to show that I myself, that I'm going to show that I actually didn't follow the law myself. My, I'm at fault too. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to establish here that there's the law, but that the law is not what actually defines God's people now that the Christ event has come. That there's been a, there's been a shift, an, an epoch shift, a difference in God's redemptive plan. Yeah. And that's where we, we come up to at the end here of chapter 2 and 21 that he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. And interestingly enough, uh, that there is referring to not the grace found in the Christ event, but the grace that was extended to the Jewish people through the giving of the law. And that interesting, the, yeah, and that the law uh, actually was a gracious event by God, and that it was given for God's people for a specific purpose of which he go, he's going to go into in chapter three, but he doesn't nullify that because if righteousness comes through the law, if that was where God was at work trying to make His people right with Him through that means, then Christ died needlessly. Christ died for no purpose. That the Christ event actually was unnecessary, and so he's saying that. There was grace given in the law, but if that grace was to be the end, then there was no need for anything else. And so he's trying to undo some false logic here, which he goes into a lot of rhetorical statements at the beginning of uh, Galatians 3 as an effort to now fight against this false premise that observing the law is necessary in order to be considered part of the covenant people of God and to be a child of Abraham, which then makes you a rightful heir of the inheritance and promises God gave to him. This is a huge shift he's working towards here because I think of Moses, for example. I mean, if we're going to be on one end of the law, let's go to the other end uh, where the law began. And there was a man picking up sticks and it was the Sabbath and they were not accustomed to keeping the Sabbath. So they didn't really know what to do with the guy. And they went to Moses, and they said, Moses, there's a guy picking up sticks to make a fire on the Sabbath. You said not to do that, right? What do we do? And Moses also doesn't have a clue what to do. So he asked God, God, what do we do? And, and God says, kill him. Execute him. 
it's a severe penalty to break the Sabbath. That goes to show that there is this sort of like drastic change occurring, and people are either going to get on board with how God is choosing to relate to his people, or they can leave. You know what I mean? It's not like anybody's holding a, holding a sword to anyone's head at that time saying, you have to come with us. Anybody who wanted to stay in Egypt could stay in Egypt. Anyone who wanted to stay in the wilderness could stay in the wilderness. There was no no requirement there or blackmailing or, or coercion there. But if you were going to be part of the covenant people of God, you had to understand your relationship with God and with your fellow Israelite and the, then the Gentiles in this certain kind of way. When that shift occurred, it was a little bumpy, and, it, and there was some drastic stuff that happened to, to get people on board with it. And so now we're in a new epoch, I like that term you used, where the new covenant is coming in. Jesus is, according to Hebrews, better than Moses. So this is mm-hmm. even bigger than what Moses did. And Paul is right on the, on the, the edge of this thing where he's, he's trying to help people to see how this Christ event changes not just some minor facts about, oh, so it was Jesus, that's the prophet like unto Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Okay, yes, but what did Moses say? He said, a prophet like me will arise from among your brethren, listen to him. And if you don't listen to him, you will be cut off from your people. So, I mean, this is, this is a big, huge step in a new direction. It's not going to be the same old business as usual. It's going to be different. And what you're saying here is it affects how you think about salvation. It affects how you think about yourself as a people, just identity itself, like even Jewish ethnic identity. Even that needs to change, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and that was, I mean, I think you've really set the the stage there pretty good for understanding just how important the law was in the eyes of, of the Jewish nation uh, of whom they, they saw themselves, and they were God's chosen people, a uh, people chosen by God uh, to represent him, which he's uh, people chosen to display his, his power, glory, and goodness, his justice, uh, to bring a light to the nations, and also to be through whom God would ultimately fulfill the promises to the ancestors and, and bring about redemption for his creation. So the question Paul is looking at here is, is not who's Jesus. You know, the, these Judaizers, the question of Jesus as the Messiah isn't the issue. They, they all agree that Jesus is the Messiah. The problem was, was that the Jewish people, Jewish Christians, the Judaizers saw that, okay, you, you believe in Jesus as the Messiah, that's great, but it is through the law. It's through observing the law. It's, it's being identified as God's people by being observant of his commandments that brings you into the covenant. That actually, they saw the Mosaic legislation as the extension of the Abrahamic promise, meaning if you wanted to be part of the covenant God made with Abraham to be the blessing to the entire world and through whom God would end up choosing you and redeeming you and making you his possession, then you had to find yourself within the law somehow in order to be part of the Abrahamic covenant. And so they saw that you can't get rid of the law because if you get rid of the law, you get rid of Abraham. And so these things, these things were intricately connected in the Jewish mind. And that's why covenantal nomism was such a big deal and why Paul is going to go through great pains here to try to disprove that necessity for being declared right before God and part of God's covenant people and an heir of that covenant. All right. So let's go to that and see how, how he does that. How does he go about making that case in chapter three? All right, well, chapter 3 starts off, uh, and in like a uh, epistolar rhetorical analysis structure, this is what's called the probatio, which is basically the listing of proofs that demonstrate the validity of the claims made in the propositio, which is previously what we just read in uh, chapter 2, verses 15, 15 to 21. And that's the premise that Paul is arguing for, that the justification— that the being made right with God, being in a right relationship, being part of God's people is not through or by observing the law, that it's not works of the law, it's not the circumcision, it's not the dietary restriction, it's not the 
festival celebrations or the ritual purity, the Sabbath uh, keeping, things like that, 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 it's, that those things aren't what identify you any longer as being part of God's people, that now it's faith in the Messiah, faith in God's anointed one, that is what unifies and identifies a person as being a, part of, a covenant member, actually, and part of God's people. Yeah, uh, just before you get to the probatio there, when I hear people refer to other Christians, sometimes they use that term believer. Oh, so-and-so is a believer. How many believers do you know in Kentucky or whatever? You know, like we have that as a, as a, a term, and that I think is a nod to this idea that faith in Christ is what defines us as God's people. Well, faith is the the great equalizer in Paul's eyes that yeah. demolishes the ethnic boundary between Jew and Gentile in the traditional sense. Yeah, I wonder like how Jews today talk about other Jews who keep the who keep the law versus ones that do not. Cuz I mean they like especially here in New York, we have lots of Jewish people that are not they're they're basically just secular. I mean, maybe they'll do some festivals or holidays, holy days, but they're not Torah observant. Maybe that's what they would say. Do you know any? Do you know any Jews who are Torah observant or whatever? So, like, yeah, I would say even today, there is a sense in which these are the defining identity characterizers for Jews and Christians. Jews define themselves with respect to whether or not someone is observant, Torah observant, whereas Gentiles who are Christians define ourselves based on, do you believe? Are you a believer? Or you might hear the phrase, are you born again? But that's that means that you believed and then had this experience as a conversion experience. All right, so uh, bring us right into chapter 3 then. All right, so in, in chapter 3, as we start off here, Paul actually has three different stages. One of them is that he gives these empirical arguments, which he basically appeals to the Galatians' experience. Then he has some exegetical arguments where he appeals to Scripture— and then he throws at the end some ad hominem arguments, which are basically some appeals to logic and, and other just uh, an assortment of, of different attacks against the false claims of these Judaizers. So uh, the empirical arguments right at the beginning, you can read them in verses like one through five. I think if I count right, there's six questions he asks in this diatribe type of style, almost like a rhetorical, like he's asking these questions in just an effort for them to begin, like, just think about this Galatians. Like, let's, <laughs> let's think about how did this, how did this first go down with you from the beginning when the gospel was first preached? He says, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Or that's the first one. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Second question. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the third one, are, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Oh, that was like a three and four there. The fifth one, I think, is here that did you suffer or experience so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And uh, then lastly, is it he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, among you uh, does he do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? So there's like this series of just questions on... It's like a know, machine gun. Yeah, he's like, Galatians, look at this. Let's look at these two sides, law and faith. Let me, why don't you tell me, or just, you know, he's, he's basically asked them to be introspective here for a second to reflect on, okay, remember your experience. How did this whole thing happen? Did you get the spirit because you were Torah observant? Or did you get the Spirit because when you heard about Christ and you put your trust in Him, that that faith then, you received the Spirit along as part of the blessing of Abraham as the covenant fulfillment? You know, how, how did this all happen? And then he drops Genesis 15, 6 like a bomb. You know, he's like getting him ready for it. And then when he, when he drops that, it's like, Abraham, it says, believe God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's like, booyah, free law. He's basically like saying, you know, you think you're children of Abraham. You think you're, you're heirs of the covenant promises of Abraham. Let's look at Abraham, first of all. Okay, Abraham believed God. He had, he had faith, and, and that was then credited to him, or he was declared to be righteous on account of that. And then he says, therefore, to be sure, and he, he kind of follows up, uh, that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. He's like, take the precedent here of Abraham, a man of faith, and if you want to really be his children— it's not by ethnic descent, biological descent, and it's not by this observation of the law that somebody is his child, but it's somebody who has faith like he did. And interestingly enough, that's 
leads into verse 8. And this is probably one of the most powerful parts of this section of Scripture. It says, The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. Back in Genesis 12, 3. And what's so significant is that he's saying the whole idea behind the promises given to Abraham already had the foresight that the Gentiles would be receiving that blessing through faith. He's saying that Abraham and the way God was working with him, the promise that God gave Abraham, that faith was in view from the beginning. And so then he's going to launch into a little bit of explanation about the law here. His conclusion is that in verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith or the faithful Abraham. He goes into talking about those under the law because that's the issue. The issue is that the Judaizers were saying that people needed to keep the law. So he's like, for as many as are of or who rely on uh, people who are oriented toward the works of the law, they're under a curse, he said. And this is directly in contrast to the blessing of Abraham uh, back in in verse 9. So he's saying that the blessing that, that God gave to Abraham, that happens through faith. But if you rely on and you believe that the blessing is based on law, he's saying, actually, the law, those people who are, are, are of the law, they're under a curse, not a blessing. Yeah, this kind of harkens back to uh, the last verse of 2 as well. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You know, he, he's really setting up a, a contrast here where you've got one or the other. Either you've got Christ and it's apart from the law and it goes back to this promise of Abraham or you've got the law. And if you've got the law, then you don't really need Christ. But at the same time, you are under a curse. So that's going to be a problem. (laughs) Yeah. And and Paul then pulls out another uh, citation from Deuteronomy uh, here, uh, Deuteronomy 27. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. This has often been taken by people as Paul trying to establish that, if you perfectly obey the law, then everything's good. That uh, the covenant blessings would come to somebody who's, who perfectly obeys the law, but nobody can perfectly obey the law. Well, actually, Paul does not quote the Old Testament for that purpose, to try to demand perfect obedience to law or even the expectation. What he's doing is he's quoting that to indicate the consequence of failure of which the law brings. The law points to the idea that there is sin. It reveals sin. So that's an, a contrast with the old perspective to the new perspective. Old perspective is, is going to look at this text as saying, you have to keep the whole law, nobody could do it, we're all worthless maggots. Whereas the new perspective is going to be like, well, actually, that that's not his point here. His point is to say that there is a curse if you don't follow the law, and then to obviously move that in the second into, but Jesus took that curse upon himself for us. Yeah, yeah, that, that definitely is the distinction. And also the idea that the law was designed to reveal that curse, that the righteousness that can be found in the law is not a righteousness that is redemptive, but that it's a righteousness in the sense of fulfilling the expectations of the covenant. But that covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is is not attached in the way the Jews, the Judaizers, were making it to the Abrahamic covenant. They They saw the Abrahamic covenant actually being extended by and fulfilled through observance of the Mosaic Covenant. And so Paul is highlighting that there's not a positive expectation in a redemptive sense, or what we call a salvific effect, by observing the law, but that there's actually a negative, like the the result of the law is to point out a curse, not to justify that that was never actually a function the law could even perform, period. And so that's why in verse 11, Paul follows up to say that, uh, that no one is justified by the law before God. And then he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 there, that the righteous shall live by faith. That in, he's trying to pair that there's law versus faith. And that's why the law, he says, is not of faith in verse 12. Uh, and then he quotes this really interesting passage from Leviticus 18.5 that the one who practices them shall live by them. But this is not referring to, like, shall gain eternal life through them or will receive a redemptive effect based upon. This is actually the promise that those who do the covenant stipulations of the Mosaic law, that they will be blessed 
in the context of Leviticus 18 of given the land of Canaan and being prospered there and protected there as God said he would if they would be his people and follow his commandments. And that's why then he follows up to say that, okay, well, so the law gives a curse. And therefore, how does the Christ event relate with faith in Christ and the Christ event? He said, well, Christ has redeemed us from that curse, becoming the curse. And the, then he quotes Deuteronomy 21, 23, that curses everyone who hangs on a tree. And this is the reason that Christ redeemed us from these two things in order that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we, that would be Gentiles and Jews there, would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the culminating conclusion here that Paul comes to is that the law had a different purpose entirely that didn't relate to the promise of blessing in Abraham. But it did fulfill a, a purpose, and he's, and that's where we're going to go next, is he's going to be like, okay, so I just established that in Christ, the curse of the law was handled, and that in Christ, the blessings of Abraham come to us all through faith. And then he tries to talk about Mosaic legislation based in the, in the covenant with, with Moses, and then the promise to Abraham, and the relationship between those two, because that's the big question. In covenantal nomism, the need to observe the law is tied with the fulfillment of the promise. But then verses 15 through 18, Paul goes to show that when a covenant is made, or an agreement is made, that an, a later covenant doesn't undo the one before it necessarily. And he's saying that the promises were given to Abraham and to his seed. And then he interprets that the collective seed re uh, referring to Abraham's descendants, offspring, as actually being focused on only one particular one. Yeah, this is an interesting move he makes here. Yeah, so this, this movie makes is that, so the Jewish people saw themselves as the offspring of Abraham, the descendants, to whom the promises were promised, and they saw themselves as being given the law, the Torah, as a way of being identified within that covenant and a member of God's people who would be recipients of the blessing of that of the Abrahamic promise. But Paul's like, but actually God's promise isn't to his his genetic, his biological offspring. It's actually to one particular offspring, the one to whom God foresaw that he would be able to bring the blessings to the Gentiles through faith. And that is, he says, that seed is Christ. Yeah, having seen how Christ is the intended recipient of the promise of Abraham, and he is the one who has perfectly fulfilled the law, and then also suffered the curse by being hanged on the tree. I mean, what does this all say about the purpose of the law? Yeah, I think that's what Paul handles next, is he basically is going to explain, okay, so if the promises that God made to Abraham are inherited by being Torah observant and being part of the Jewish people, then then why did God give the law in the first place? If that was never going to be the way that the promises were fulfilled, then the Jewish mind would obviously want to be, so then why do we have the law? We, I thought the law was the means by which we are able to be promised by God as a recipient of the covenant that he made with Abraham. So then that's where he goes in chapter 3. In this verse 19, he says, so why then the law? And he says it was added because of transgressions, uh, meaning it was added because of sin. It was added to expose sin, to, to make sin known. And then it has a function to kind of guide and lead God's people until the seed would come to whom the promises had been made. And that was referring to Christ, as he said back in 16. He said, is the law contrary then to the promises? So like if the promises aren't fulfilled by the law, then is the law like against them? He said the law came 430 years after the promise that God made to Abraham. So he's like, is, are these two things in opposition to each other? And then you have this really strong negation, like, you know, may it never be, or maybe the KJV, God forbid, but may it never be is probably better. He said, if there had been a law that was able to impart life, then righteousness or, or being declared right, being justified, being part of God's covenant people would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, basically demonstrating that life couldn't come based upon law. Just law in general, not just even the Mosaic legislation, but law itself as a principle is not able to actually impart life. And the reason is, is so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Let me ask a, a kind of an off-text off question. 
uh, because it's not directly derived from what we're reading here in Galatians. But what you're saying is that the law is not helpful or necessary for salvation, right? That it's independent Correct. of salvation, so Correct. to speak. So what about, for example, someone who says that, okay, the law is not salvation, but you should still keep it? I would ask them why they would assert it. Well, let's say, for example, for Jews, they've already been keeping the law ever since the time of Moses. They've been keeping the law. So Christ comes. He does this thing for salvation. But how does it follow that just because now they're saved through Christ that they should stop, they should start eating bacon or start working on Saturday? I mean, where would you fall on that? First, I would say that no Jew has to start eating bacon for any reason. Uh, and uh, so, so you would not make that a, as a rule. Like, if you convert to Christianity, let's say you grew up as a pious Jew, Orthodox, whatever, and then you convert to Christianity, you you wouldn't be like at the person's baptism, like have a, a plate of bacon there, like <laughs> welcome to the faith, brother. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't say uh, bring him up out of the water and then and then give him a a BLT or something. <laughs> so. Observation of Torah as as a as a Jewish person uh, who then comes to Christ, uh, I think that that first of all uh, entitles a shift, complete shift in their understanding of themselves as a, as an identified uh, with God. That their identity isn't necessarily through Torah observance any longer, and I think that that entails a shift in understanding its role it should play in the life of faith. Now, I'll further say that. There are a lot of ways that people honor God and devote themselves to observing things that direct their attention toward God and, and they meditate on God. Uh, people fast, people meditate, people pray. If dietary restrictions or if setting apart certain times of day or days or whatever that are consecrated for God's glory and for maybe his work or, or things like that, growing closer to him, communing and fellowship with him and his son, Jesus Christ, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with any of that. Yeah, it seems like Paul has a very laissez-faire mind towards observation of days and foods. Like in Romans, I'm thinking like 13 or 14. He talks about how, you know, Mm -hmm. somebody observes a day and another one doesn't and how you shouldn't judge one another. Like, hey, if they're observing the Sabbath, then do it. Do it for God. And if they're not, then they're not doing it. But it's still for God that they're not doing it. So that's really the position that he holds on this issue. So Paul does not seem to be a stickler on Jews continuing to keep the law. I mean, even even the point you raised earlier about Peter and Barnabas and table fellowship. You know, he's like, look, if it gets in the way of the gospel, if it gets in the way of community, then just just eat whatever. This is just a huge kind of a statement, right? Yeah, definitely. And... I think it's important to recognize that Paul himself, though a Jew and a Pharisee and a very faithful uh, observer of Torah throughout his life, uh, after coming to Christ, that all shifted for him. While he still observed law in certain contexts, in other places he didn't. He was very willing to to fraternize with the Gentile believers, to share table fellowship, to be uh, to not have the ritual purity laws prevent him from the associations uh, that were in the Christian church at that time of the mixing between Jew and, Jew and Gentiles. And I think in Romans 14, which is another one of his writings, he says it really well here. Verse 5, he says, One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And he also mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that he was Torah observant at times when he was among the Jews in his effort to preach the gospel to them and for them to see the significance of the Christ event. But then when he was not with Jews, he was not Torah observant. You know, so he, he catered to the circumstance for which would make him the most effective minister, evangelist, and apostle for the Lord possible. 
Right, right, right. The, the only way to avoid the charge of hypocrisy then is if he holds in his heart the position that the law has come to an end for relating to God, and you can keep it or you cannot keep it. It does not really matter. What matters is your faith in Christ and then living by the Spirit, which is the new guide to life as opposed to what the law had said. Would, would you say that's fair or yeah. too strong? Yeah, that's good. And I think lastly here in, in this discussion on covenantal nomism and, and Paul and the letter to the Galatians here in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, he gives, I think, Paul gives one of, the, one of the most important descriptions to understand the purpose for being Torah observant, and that is that God gave the Mosaic legislation after the promise to Abraham, and he gave it in order to keep his people what's called being in custody. And he says that, that the law was a guardian, this uh, really interesting Greek term, pedagogos. And the law functioned as this pedagogos in a way to teach, discipline, and protect God's people in the covenant until the one, the seed, to whom God made the promises would come and would usher in the time of maturity. Because he's saying that when God's people were in this time of, of immaturity, in the sense of being underage, not immaturity, not being like uh, godless or anything like that, but that they were underage in a metaphor in reference to the Greco-Roman world where children were overseen by these these stewards, these guardians that would take care of them. They would um, attend to them throughout the day and teach them and discipline them. And that until a child grew up to a certain age set by the father for which they would become a mature adult and be able to be a, uh, have the responsibility and authority of the family, that they were under this guardian. But when that time comes and they grow up and they're the full authority and responsibility of them being an heir in the house, in their father's house would come, then the, the time of the guardian would end. And Paul's saying that that is what the law is. The law was this temporary institution, a sort of guardian to usher God's people from a, a point of infancy after the promises were made. He gave this law to the descendants of, of Abraham through Isaac and then Jacob. So Jacob's descendants get this legislation and another covenant that God made with them as his people, and that the law ushered them from that time to the point when the person that God intended the promises to be fulfilled through, i.e. Christ, that the law held God's people sort of in this protective custody until that time when the faith would be revealed through whom the promises would come that God originally intended so that the Gentiles could be justified and made equal heirs of the promises of God that he made to Abraham. So then to go back under the authority and the rules of the pedagogue of the guardian would be weird. Like you, you reach a certain age and now you're set free to do what it is you're supposed to do. So to go back under that wouldn't make any sense, right? Yeah, it's almost like in our culture, you get a driver's license first by getting a permit. And then you have to drive with your parents for a while under that permit. And it's almost like when you become 16 and you're, and you're now able to go and get a full license to be able to drive by yourself to say, no, I actually think that we need to have a, I need to have a permit and I need to have my father or mother to accompany me all the time in the car. It's like it's not graduating into the intended purpose for which you had a permit. The permit right, was right. meant to bring you to the point where you're educated enough and you're capable enough to operate a vehicle safely that you can then get a license and then be have that responsibility and authority. Right, right. All right, so how do we, how do we wrap things up here? Well, I would say that this is just a, an introduction to some of Paul's theology that I, I thought would be really cool for the listeners to hear and to undo some misconceptions about the way that the law was perceived and the way that Paul was arguing about it. So I think the way we can go from here is just to understand that, you know, Paul is trying to show that the Christ event brought about this complete shift in the way that the Jews were to understand themselves in relationship to God's promises and that the law, as it was supposed to function, that that purpose had come to an end. 
And whether or not somebody uh, observes things in dedication to to God or not is a question outside of Paul's scope here. He's talking about what is the basis for which somebody is a covenant member, and what is the basis for which somebody is an heir of the promises of God and receiving the blessing of Abraham, and on what basis does God give his spirit to his people? Right. All right, well, there there you have it. (laughs) (laughs) Paul and Galatians in uh, less than an hour, and... There's obviously a lot more here to talk about and wrestle with, right, Jerry? Oh, yeah. There's so much here, Sean. We just we just kind of like breezed through to chapter three, and, and we didn't even like go through systematically through Paul's argumentation. We just tried to hit the highlights. So there's a lot here, and, and I encourage people to to take the, the understanding of covenantal nomism that I was sharing with before and look at Paul's argumentation and understand that it's, it's, it's not about works and faith. It's about law and faith, and it's about do you need to become Jewish in identity by being law-observant? in God's program for redemption, or or how has that been displaced now by faith in Christ in Paul's gospel? Right. All right, well, thanks. I appreciate your work on this. Well, thank you, Sean, for having me. Well, I hope you found that helpful. If you want to hear more of Jerry Weirwell, just check out the show notes for this episode, either on your device or online at restitutio.org under interview 37. And you can find a number of other interviews that Weirwell has done as well as visit his own website, jerrywearwell.com, for sermons and articles by him. Before closing out, I wanted to read out some feedback. Quite honestly, I've been getting in so much feedback and comments, as well as other sources, that it's, it's not possible for me to read everything out. So if I don't get to yours, apologies in advance. But I did want to read out what a couple of people said about this particular subject that Weirwell was just on about, John Rothos writes, Hi, Sean. I began listening to this episode on Paul and covenantal nomism with disinterest, thinking our, I already had the Apostle Paul's view on matters, and that there was nothing new really to be learned, and that this episode was going to just be a convoluted, dry, scholastic, historical review, looking at some of the background up to today. Well, thanks a lot, John, for that vote of confidence. Anyhow, he goes on, This was how I thought up until about 15 minutes from the end when Jerry mentioned that Paul argued that the new covenant was distinct, but not against the law covenant, that my ears really started to listen. What Jerry was explaining was only starting to make sense to me. The idea was something radically different to what I thought. From the beginning, you and Jerry were discussing this idea up until that point, but it was not sinking in. At the end, I excitedly replayed the whole interview, listening intently to the discussion. And now I am on tender hooks waiting for the next episode for the discussion to continue around Galatians. I think this is epic. It really never ceases to amaze me how we can have these ingrained and preconceived ideas about some things when reading the scriptures until someone like Jerry pulls some material together and gives us something to consider that is a real game changer. Thank you guys and keep up the good work. On the same Episode from last week, Sean Holbrook wrote a bit of a comment talking about his own journey, and he mentions that he's looking forward to hearing more from Jerry. Thanks for sharing this interview. I like how you're branching out into many other topics that are somewhat controversial with this podcast. Not that Unitarianism already isn't. Well, Sean, uh, I try to have a good variety of subjects. Uh, Obviously, I do put on series where we will focus on one topic for an extended period of time. In fact, starting next week, we are going to begin our Calvinism series where we have, uh, I have this really great pair of young Christian theologians, uh, young men who are debating either side of Calvinism versus Arminianism. And they're doing it in a very respectful and cordial way. So we're going to be getting away from Paul and the law and into Calvin and Arminius, and, you know, it's still very similar because a lot of this turns on interpretations within Paul's epistles. They do draw also from other parts of the Bible as well for this debate. So stay tuned for that, and uh, thanks for writing in, Sean. Brian writes, It's always a pleasure to hear interviews with Jerry Weirwell. I'm dubious that I'll really enjoy his explanation of Galatians, but it should be a fun interview regardless. Maybe one day you could interview a scholar from the Paul Within Judaism School, the NPP, this new perspective on Paul, doesn't really go as far as it should, whereas PWJ, Paul within Judaism, in my opinion, asks better questions and in turn gets better answers. 
it would be good to hear Jerry present the typical explanation of Galatians 2 and then maybe have Mark Nanos, someone who really specializes in this area and who has written at least five papers on this text alone, on for an interview. I could probably arrange this as Mark and I talk frequently. Hey, Brian, that sounds like a good idea. I, I'm definitely game for interviewing Mark Nanos. As it is right now, I've got things pretty locked up with this uh, extended debate series on Calvinism already in the can and ready to go for the next few weeks. But uh, I would definitely consider doing that in the future. Hopefully, Jerry, in this episode, did present the uh, what you call a typical explanation of Galatians 2 there. Uh, I did want to also mention that uh, Jerry does have graduate degrees, and he did earn a master's focused on Pauline studies for one of them and uh, the other one was in uh, ministry. So uh, it's not like he is just some random guy who read a book. I mean, he is, apart from his PhD in biomedical engineering, uh, he also has these other graduate master's degrees in uh, biblical fields from accredited universities. So that's not to say that what he says is automatically right, but it does say that he is uh, he's not flying by the seat of his pants by any means either. So some good thoughts to consider. I would encourage you or anyone to have an open mind here that uh, perhaps the idea that Paul kept the law and considered that to be the standard Christian behavior for Jews who believe in Jesus, that that position could be the mistaken one. Uh, just looking over church history and looking over the, the wealth of New Testament scholars today, that is the reigning paradigm. This is, again, doesn't make it right, but uh, you know I think if you read through the, his epistles, that is certainly the impression that, uh, at least that I get. Anyhow, switching to another subject, some time ago I released a paper on translating the Holy Spirit and got a really interesting comment on that from Miguel. He writes, I am a Catholic living in Italy with rather heterodox views on the Trinity and the conscious survival of the soul and other points of doctrine. I am part of the liturgical group of my parish church and in the process of searching the web in view of preparing my comment for Pentecost, I bumped into this article at the old blog Kingdom Ready and was resent here. Being familiar with classical Greek from my studies, I thoroughly enjoyed your textual, grammatical, hermeneutical, and only finally theological approach. I also appreciate your conclusion that the Spirit is hard to define and it steadfastly defies categorization. Even if I prefer to conceptualize God's Logos Devar and Pnevma Ruach as God's essential structural attributes. See Deuteronomy 33.27 and Psalm 33.26. Well, Miguel, you're probably not listening to this, but if you are, thanks for writing in. I certainly do think that grammar and accurate translation is a key factor for understanding the Holy Spirit. So, hey, if you're, if you're interested, take a look at that paper. It's a bit lengthy, but I believe it does set straight some issues that people end up using to try to make a grammatical case for the personhood of the Spirit, which, which I think is totally untenable. And so does Daniel Wallace, by the way, uh, whose paper I leaned on heavily for my own paper on that. Last of all, John Alton writes on an old interview I did with Dale Tuggy. He writes, Thank you for this interview. I would like to thank Dale for his comments regarding Trinitarians not being idolaters. Every now and then I will have discussions about this topic and the two opposing views that I can't decide which is right. On the one side, my belief that Jesus is not God makes me think that those who think and worship Jesus as God is idolatry. And then I think that many of these people are sincere, genuine Christians who love God and Jesus and desire to serve God and do His will. It's a dichotomy between biblical correctness and love. Dale's comments really helped me settle this as he comes from this background and understands their heart. I think I would, I would often conclude that love is the greater uh, as that's the general tenor of scriptures, so thanks for setting this straight. Uh, well, John, this is certainly a contested subject in the biblical Unitarian community, and uh, and Dale does take a, a more open view to the whole, the whole matter. I can't quite go along with Dale, to be honest, because it could very well be that God is offended at these things, and uh, I think we should assume that someone would want to know that they're worshiping God incorrectly and in an appropriate and kind way help them to see 
what the Bible really teaches on this subject. I'm, I'm not saying you wouldn't do that anyhow, John or, or Dale, but um, we just can't assume that everyone's fine because they say, I believe in Jesus. Uh, maybe they are. Hey, that would be great. But uh, I think it's just a dangerous assumption. And so I think I'm a little bit more to the right of Dale on this issue. Uh, not so far to the right that I would say people outside of my group are all damned or anything silly like that. But uh, it certainly is a live question. We will be airing a subsequent episode after the debate series and some other stuff that I have planned where we address this topic in a full-length episode. So stay tuned for that. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If I didn't get your comment, I'm sorry that I wasn't able to do it. But keep them rolling in. These are great. The interaction's awesome. And if you find any of these episodes helpful, please share it with your friends. If what Wirral said in this episode uh, you think is totally wrong, please write in. Give your defense. And uh, who knows? Maybe that'll turn into a future debate or a future episode of some sort. So thanks for listening. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.